Welcome to this week's guest, Laurel Clark, who's a dream expert, counselor, coach, writer, teacher, and an artist. Laurel has been keeping a dream journal for over 45 years. She's a member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams and a current board member and past president of this organization. She's the author of the book, Intuitive Dreaming, and co-editor and contributor to Interpreting Dreams for Self-Discovery, Dreams That Changed Our Lives, and a contributor to the Encyclopedia of Sleep and Dreams, Weaving Dreams into the Classroom, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Dreams and the Unexplainable, and Lucid Dreaming. Aside from the dream books, Laurel has also written at least four or five other books. We actually met in St. Louis, where I live, at Medici Media Space, which is a really interesting co-working space that we have here in this city. And I've also attended several of her dream workshops, where I still use that information that I got in those classes pretty much every night as I'm actually remembering my dreams. Today, we're going to get an understanding of how dreaming plays a role in self-discovery, spiritual exploration, understanding our own consciousness and intuition. We're also going to get to hear about Laurel's path to becoming a spiritual teacher and her personal experiences in communicating with the other side and the power of dreams. Remember to stay tuned in until the end and participate in this week's challenge and share your experience to have it aired on a future episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to Archives for Aliens, a podcast recorded for future life on Earth, planet Earth, consciousness, creativity, the nature of reality, cool people making things, and life outside the box. What makes you tick? A string in a curly cue pattern with a clip attached on one side. How do you think this might relate to something that you'd like to share with the world tonight? I think that many people have an experience as they go through life of having their thoughts and feelings feel like that string, like it's going um, not in any particular direction. And there's something that keeps getting their attention, which is how I see that clip like it might be something that they hear or something that they see. And I believe strongly that it's important for people to pay attention to those things that stick with them instead of saying, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, everything's fine. I think there's a reason why things stick with us, you know, whether it's a pang of conscience or, um, it's just like it might be a critical thought in our mind or something that they keep seeing or hearing on the news. I think the reason why those things impress themselves in our consciousness is we need to pay attention to it. 
So that's a big part of what I do is teach people how to do that how to listen to their intuition, how to still their conscious mind so that they can listen to the voice that's coming from within, listen to their dreams, listen to the higher self and meditation, which then I think can help that string that's not going in any direction to help give us a sense of inner direction. So kind of helping people listen to the clip. Yes. Yes. That's a great exercise. I love it. <laughs> I know. I think it's such a fun way to to warm up the conversation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it does come around really full circle, which is fun and intriguing to observe. The first question I like to ask people is, um, tell us a little bit about what you believe about the nature of reality so people can kind of get to know you. Well, that's a a big question. Um, Well, I will say this, first of all, I have been involved with remembering and recording dreams for decades and There's an organization I belong to called the International Association for the Study of Dreams. And there's a man who I met through that organization who has developed a vocabulary for describing reality. So for example, sometimes people will say, was that real or was that just my imagination? Was that real or was that a dream? And so, The question that he poses that I agree with is there are different kinds of reality. So there's physical waking reality, the things that we can touch with our senses. There's unconscious dream reality when we have a dream and we're not aware in the dream that we're dreaming, but we wake up and we remember the dream. There's lucid dream reality, which is being in a dream and then realizing, wow, I'm dreaming. So in terms of your question about the nature of reality, one belief I have is that there are different kinds of reality. And I think it's important for us to validate the reality of the mind and the experiences of the mind instead of diminishing it by saying, oh, it was just a dream or just imagination. In terms of what we do with that reality, I think that's a personal choice that we have to make all the time. So for example, um, we're here in St. Louis, Missouri, and last week it was extremely cold for St. Louis. Temperatures overnight that were below zero, and that's not wind chill, that's actual temperature. So that's an external physical condition. Each one of us had our own personal reality of how we experienced that. So some people hate the cold and spent the whole week being afraid of the cold, afraid their pipes were gonna freeze. Some people love the cold. I saw people outside running in two degree temperatures. when for me personally when it's sunny and cold i love it when it's cloudy and cold i have a much different experience of it so i think 
recognizing that there is an external reality and an internal reality that have a relationship to each other. I think it's important when we're even interpreting what's going on in our lives in the world to be aware of what is this reality that I'm paying attention to? Is, my, is it my attitude about it? My thoughts and feelings about it? Is it an actual um, objective experience? And learning how to ask other people questions so that we're not assuming that we're living in the same reality when sometimes we're not. Yeah, that, that I like that point at the end there. So it sounds like you, you believe in this idea of a lot of realities kind of coexisting at one time, which I guess isn't really a belief. It's just kind of how life is in a way. I would say it's a belief. I don't think everybody believes that. <laughs> I think some people believe that the physical body and the physical senses is all there is. And even when um, talking about the mind and consciousness, people who believe that we are physical beings interpret all of that according to the brain. Something happens in the brain and then the effect of that is we have mind experiences. I look at it the other way around, that we have mind experiences that then have effects in the brain. Hmm. And so that's a, a different perspective that people have about cause and effect, I guess is how I would describe it. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to have these beliefs? You know, I'm not sure that I know, Jasmine. One belief that I have is in reincarnation. And what I mean by that is our life is a schoolroom. We go through life lessons. And I think similar to going to elementary school or high school, if we get the lesson, we graduate to the next grade. If we don't get the lesson, then we have to go back and repeat the grade. I think that happens from one lifetime to the next. And I do want to say that by reincarnation, I believe that we're always in human form. I don't think that we incarnate into animal bodies. And I didn't always believe in reincarnation. It's something that I have developed over the years. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that I think when a, a baby is born, they have a new physical body. They have a brain that doesn't have any information recorded in it yet. And yet not all babies are the same. I mean, people talk about it, a baby having a personality, even identical twins or triplets, their genes are exactly the same, but the soul that's in that body is different. So I think some of the things that I believed, not because anybody taught it to me, I think it's probably things I carried into this lifetime from previous lifetimes. I do also know that I was raised in a family that was very open-minded. So for example, I wasn't raised in a religion and my parents, before they even met each other, had rejected 
formalized religion. I would say that they were definitely moral, definitely ethical. My father maybe was more spiritual than my mother in some ways. She was raised in a, a very strict religion. And so the reason that my parents raised my sisters and me without a religion is they wanted us to make our own decisions about what we believed. So I was encouraged to be curious, to ask questions. Unlike some of my friends who kind of grew up with prejudices about religion because of how they were raised, I was just very open and curious. And that kind of curiosity about people and life, that was a big part of my upbringing. So it's kind of a long answer to say that I think I got the beliefs from a combination of how I was raised, the example of my parents, the things that they taught, and what I believe I was born with when I came into this lifetime. That's actually like such a cool answer. And I actually, I haven't spoken with many people who had like very open upbringings. So I, I think that's interesting. I appreciate it. It's um, when I was very young, I felt um, sort of left out because I'm of the age that it was very unusual for someone to be raised without a religion. And I grew up in a suburb of New York City and all of the kids in my elementary school were either Protestant, some denomination of Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish. And that was part of how kids introduced themselves to each other. My name is so-and-so and I'm Jewish, or my name is so-and-so and I'm Catholic. And I used to say, my name is Laurel and I'm nothing because I didn't have a religion. And so kind of the thought that went with that is that I didn't belong. I didn't have a, uh, hmm. you know, for a lot of kids who are raised in a religion, their churches, it's kind of like a tribe. They have friends there, there's a community there. And um, so there were benefits to that open-mindedness. And at the same time, there was a kind of longing that I had to have a place to belong that I didn't feel like I had. Yeah. Do you think you found that later in life? I do. I mean, I think that a big part of what has contributed to the kind of work that I do is wanting to understand myself, um, not just reading, but practicing different kinds of spiritual disciplines. And so the sense of belonging that I have, I think is rooted deeply in what does it mean to even belong to myself? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And through that, then finding or seeking out other like my. And I know you've done a lot of teaching with the School of Metaphysics. Yes, I had um, almost 40 years that I was with that organization. So that's where I developed a regular meditation practice. It's where I first started learning how to interpret dreams. And I 
retired from that organization in 2018 and I still teach my own version of many of those kinds of teachings through my own company and going into uh, organizations, doing one-on-one work with people. Do you remember how you originally found that group? I do. When I, part of my open-minded upbringing is that my parents expected my sisters and me to go to college and graduate school. And I believed from a very young age that there was something important that I was supposed to do with my life, but I didn't really know what it was. And in my innocence, I thought when I went to undergraduate school that somehow by being in college, I would figure out what I was supposed to do with my life. So I went to two different colleges I graduated from University of Michigan and I had a very interesting education. I took a lot of different classes. I switched majors about three times. I got a degree in women's studies. That's what my BA is in, which at that time it was a brand new discipline that was in the seventies. But I graduated still not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew enough to not want to go to graduate school if I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I thought about going to law school because the idea of bringing about justice and there used to be a TV show called Perry Mason that he was always fighting for the right cause that appealed to me. But I had friends in law school and I knew that that was a lot of work and I didn't want to go to law school unless I was sure I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought about getting a PhD in English and being an English professor, same thing. So I decided that I would take a break in between undergrad and graduate school to figure out what I wanted to do. And during that time, a friend of mine invited me to go to a meditation group And there was someone in that meditation group who was going to another, I can't really say it was a class. It was kind of like an unstructured discussion group to learn about um, intuitive development, meditation. And somebody who was in that group was a student at the School of Metaphysics. So at as I said, I wasn't really thinking about going to school at that time, but this same person told me that the school did these past life readings. And so this was, at that time, this would have been 1978 or 79. People didn't talk about past lives. I mean, it's not like now where you can go into a bookstore or go online. There's so much stuff out there that was not true then. So I was really curious. I had no idea what it was going to be like. And I thought, I'll get one just to see what it's like. And I was absolutely astounded at how much it resonated with me in terms of telling me what I needed to learn about myself. And I also knew that I had no idea how to put that into practice. And so that was why I became a student 
at the School of Metaphysics. So it really, it was from that desire to um, want to understand what I'm here for is what led me, you know, in kind of a roundabout way to finding the School of Metaphysics. And then that ended up evolving from me being a student to becoming a teacher and a director. And I was president of the school for a while. So it ended up becoming my career also. I cannot imagine like trying to navigate life without the internet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a different time and no cell phones either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just trying to find information, like just imagining having to go to the library to look up a book on every single question that I have. I mean, it, that's amazing how, I mean, there, there's so much misinformation out there now, which is such a problem but I feel like just so grateful for the internet right now it is a really different time in fact the man who founded the school of metaphysics was doing his own learning about these things the school unofficially started in 1968 and was incorporated in 1973 so this was probably in the 50s that he was researching and books about metaphysics weren't in the library. I mean, you had to go to an occult bookstore and he had some really, he was a great storyteller. So there's one story he told about um, trying to understand psychic abilities basically. And he found some occult bookstore and he was wandering around the aisles and a book fell off the shelf and it hit him on the head. and that was the book that he was looking for. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. That's really weird. Do you think some of those books have gotten lost in circulation? I think some of them probably have. I think some of them are probably now on the internet, the information about them is. And as you're saying, there also is misinformation out there. There are certain organizations that are pretty ancient like there's one called the theosophical society that's headquartered in the chicago area in wheaton illinois and i used to travel up in that area and i learned that they got started during um, the civil war because there were so many people who were unexpectedly being killed on the battlefield that their spirits were kind of trapped. And I can't remember the name of the people, but there were some people who had the ability to communicate with spirits and then develop writings about that and started teaching people how to do it. And so that's how the Theosophical Society got started. And they have a library um, that houses the research books that used to be considered esoteric, which means hidden. I don't know if those books are on the internet, but they do have a library that people can go to in Wheaton, Illinois. And they also have a publishing company. So and some of those books might be out of print now, but some of them are still available. Hmm, that sounds really interesting. I'll put the link to that in the description. Okay. For this talk. I guess along the lines of all this, 
do you personally think that it's important for people like me who are learning about these things to do it in a group setting or from a teacher, even though a lot of information is on the internet? I think it's very helpful and important to have a teacher. And the reason for that is there's a big difference between reading information and practicing it. And I think anything that someone is learning, they it makes it easier to learn to have somebody who can show them what to do. It doesn't mean they do it for them. So I know that you're an artist and I don't know how much of your art is self-taught. I know that I've done some abstract art from watching YouTubes and um, even with that, if I just see one of those YouTubes that's in fast motion where I see somebody's hands moving, it's hard for me to figure out what they're doing. But if there's someone who's describing it and describing how the materials work, it's, I just think it's much easier to learn that way. And especially with things that have to do with self-growth and self-development, there is a certain order of learning things that I think works better. So for example, there's a lot of information about meditation out there. And there's even a lot of different ways that people use the word meditation. So what I learned is meditation is a process of clearing the mind, sitting in silence, and deeply listening to the silence. So when I see a video that says this is a guided meditation that has somebody talking the whole time with music i don't call that meditation i would call that a guided imagery or a guided visualization and the reason why many people have a hard time meditating is that kind of chatter that goes on in our minds so what i learned was how to do concentration exercises first so that I could be aware of when my attention was wandering, learn how to hold my attention steady where I wanted it to be, so that when I was sitting to meditate, I could sit in silence instead of having this dialogue going on in my mind all the time. The, the point that I'm making is to learn to concentrate first before even trying to meditate made it more successful for me to meditate instead of sitting down and trying to do something and getting frustrated because I couldn't get my mind to slow down. And I had a teacher to teach me that order and to show me the steps. So I think that, I think people can learn without a teacher. I just think it's always easier with a teacher if you have a good teacher. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense, especially I feel like in today's society, people want everything to go fast and there's like this tendency to skip all those steps and kind of get to the point or what they think is the point but you can't really get to the point I guess if you don't have step one and two in place yet right, right. yeah it would be like somebody trying to paint a picture and they don't even know how to hold the paintbrush or to write something and they don't know how to hold the pen or they don't know how to turn their computer on. 
Yeah. When you were learning about dreams and how to interpret dreams, what what were some of the early steps that you learned? Well, the first step was how to remember dreams and write them down. There are a lot of people who think they don't dream. And the truth is that we all dream every time we sleep, unless there's something um, that we're doing that radically interferes with it. But many people don't remember dreams. So I actually learned how to remember and record my dreams from a friend in a creative writing class because she wrote poetry that I really admired. I thought the images were beautiful and I was writing poetry too, but I thought my poetry was kind of brainy. And so I asked her where she got the inspiration for her poems and she said it came from her dreams. So at that time, I knew that I had dreams because occasionally I had nightmares, but I wasn't remembering most of my dreams. So she was the one who taught me to get a journal, put it by my bed and tell myself before going to sleep that I wanted to remember my dreams. And then when I woke up to write the first thing that came to mind, and even if I didn't think I had remembered a dream to lie there for a few minutes and write down whatever I was aware of, if it was a feeling or a color. And it was amazing to me because I kind of doubted that that would work, but it absolutely worked. And a big benefit for me is that I had all these dreams written down without really knowing what to do with them. Then I went to a counselor who did some work with dreams, which was great because not all counselors do. And then after that, I found the School of Metaphysics and the first night of class, we started learning to interpret dreams. So the first step is simply remembering and writing them down so that you have the material to work with. How do you think that that can help people in their day-to-day life? Well, it's interesting to me because in the dream community, not everybody agrees about what a dream is or what the purpose of it is. In my perspective and experience, the dreams that we have all come from the dreamer and they can be interpreted um, in different ways. Just like earlier I was talking about there are different kinds of reality. At one level, all dreams are symbolic, meaning that every person in the dream symbolizes an aspect of myself. Everything in the dream symbolizes some part of myself, but they're not telling us about our waking experiences. They're telling us about our own attitudes and state of awareness. How they help us then is giving us feedback or reflecting to us how we're even looking at our life. What are the learning opportunities? Are we learning the lessons? Are we avoiding the lessons? What else might we need to give attention to? Things like that. So it's kind of like having 
a guide or a counselor or a teacher giving us feedback saying, hey, this is what's going on with you. This is what you need to pay attention to. Sometimes we have dreams that are kind of a, a pat on the back saying, hey, you're doing this well and making progress. And what I've found is that from keeping track of my dreams for years, it also helps me to see patterns. If there's a particular theme that repeats, it's usually telling me about a particular lesson that keeps repeating in my life. And it also tells me about changes that I'm making and progress that I'm making. How do you view it as being some kind of connection point between the subconscious and the conscious? The subconscious mind, I want to say this first of all, that people also use the word subconscious to mean different things. So to me, subconscious is both a collective subconscious, like very much like the internet, actually, that people's minds are connected with, with each other and an individual subconscious, which is how I look at the soul or the part of the self that is more than the brain and the physical body. And my understanding is that the subconscious mind doesn't make judgments the way the conscious mind does. So the conscious mind We'll look at an experience as being good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, like or not like. And the subconscious mind looks at situations as being neutral, that they're all here for our learning. So if I had a dream, for example, that um, somebody died or that somebody was killed, if I were to interpret that person in my dream as an aspect of myself, I would interpret death in a dream as a change. So that dream is telling me that that part of myself is changing, or if they actually die in the dream, that they have changed. If somebody is chasing after me, trying to kill me, and I'm running away, how I would interpret that is that there's some change that I'm being forced to make in my life that I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to get away from it. So the connection between the subconscious and the conscious mind is that the conscious mind might say, oh no, change is scary. Or, oh my gosh, this is a bad dream. Where the subconscious mind is saying, take a look at this. What's going on in your waking life that you need to make some changes or that you keep getting an indication that um, you should change, but you keep running away from it, something like that. Yeah. So have you found that over time, as you pay attention to your dreams, you develop a, like a better ability to, I guess, understand and listen to the that subconscious part? Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I've found from paying attention to dreams is that it's really strengthened my waking intuition, as well as being able to understand the dreams. And I was just thinking about this today. I'm not sure what stimulated the memory of it, but um, 
I have a friend and we were sitting at a table. It was at a, a meeting and she had this really bad cough. This was long before COVID, years before COVID. But I got really alarmed because to me it sounded horrible and she didn't seem that concerned about it. And so anyway, she, she coughed this just horrible cough and I turned to her and I was completely focused on her and I said, are you okay? And when I said that with all of my attention focused on helping her in my mind, I heard the word elecampine and I wrote it down because I wasn't even familiar with what that was. It was like, you know, this weird gibberish word I thought. And then I looked it up and it turns out that elecampine is an herb that helps for healing the lungs. It's an expectorant. So where did that come from? I mean, maybe I read that somewhere and didn't remember, or maybe it is something that is in universal consciousness that came to me out of my desire to help her. So I wouldn't say I have experiences like that every day, but I definitely have them much more often than I used to. And I think a big part of that is from paying attention to my dreams and keeping that channel open between the subconscious and the conscious mind. Yeah, I, I don't think there's really a lot of other platforms or like opportunities to learn how to pay attention to that part of yourself at least right now in our society i i agree with that and i think that the platforms that are out there don't have a very good reputation for whatever reason you know hollywood versions of crazy psychic people and i think unfortunately part of that gets worse by people who are not always ethical about giving people advice. I mean, one of the things that I learned very early on with the School of Metaphysics and that has been affirmed by the International Association for the Study of Dreams is that you don't make decisions for another person. You don't tell someone else what they should or shouldn't do. So. I can give somebody feedback, but for me to say, oh, you should move to California and get a job doing this, or you should not even think about marrying that person, that's not what the purpose of intuition and the subconscious mind is. It's for ourselves. And I, I believe even with, our, with ourselves that the subconscious mind doesn't make decisions for us. It gives knowledge or gives us a picture and then consciously it's up to us to decide what to do with it which is why i love that exercise you started out with because i don't know what you had in mind when you took that photograph or painted it i think it was a photograph yeah they're all other photographs and from my phone so you showed it to me and then you asked me what what do you see and how do you interpret that and I believe that's what our subconscious mind does with dreams. It, it gives us a picture and we write it down, which is our way of saying, okay, this is what I remember about what I saw and heard and felt in the dream. And then the interpretation is, okay, so what is this telling me about myself and how can I apply it in my life? 
Interesting. So it's almost like the translation of the image into words becomes part of the whole meaning and story of the dream. Yes. And some people um, actually draw pictures of their dreams because sometimes translating it into words is a challenge, especially if the strongest part of the dream is kind of an impression, you know, a feeling or um, images more than the actual plot line. And I mean, one of the things that's so interesting to me about dreams is that how people dream and what they dream about is not the same. Just like in waking life, there are some people who um, they like activities. So the things that they talk about or the games they play and the travel they go on and how fast they ran. And there are other people who talk more about ideas and about feelings and, you know, not, it's not that one's better or worse. It's just people are different in terms of what gets their attention and what's important to them and how we dream, I think reflects that. So I know from taking one of your workshops, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, one of the biggest takeaways I got from it that I'd never understood about dreams, not that I came into it knowing really much of anything, but the this idea of when you have a dream and there's a person or something coming up in the dream that it's all a part of you. And that, I to me, I got from it that you can't just go to a dream book and look up what does a cup mean for everyone that I have my own idea of what a cup means to me. Yes, I would say yes and no in that a cup has the same function for everyone, even though I might like to drink out of a handmade ceramic mug and somebody else might like to drink out of a thermal mug the cup still has the same function of holding a liquid. So in one sense, there is a universal interpretation based on the function of that thing. And then the individual interpretation is, what does that mean to me? How do I apply it? How do I understand what this is telling me about me? So it's more of like weaving both of those together. Yes. Interesting. I do have um, one request <laughs> for an interpretation, if you have anything to say okay. about it. Um, there's somebody I know who keeps having a dream about uh, a high-speed car, being in a high-speed car and not being able to stop the car. Not necessarily crashing into anything, but just driving this car like way too fast and it being a very unpleasant experience in the dream. So how I learned to interpret a car is that a car symbolizes the physical body. And the reason for that in relation to what I was just talking about is the function of a car is a vehicle that we use to get from point A to point B. So considering 
the dreamer, the self, as a non-physical being, a soul, a spirit, whatever you want to call it, the vehicle that we use to get from point A to point B is our physical body. So if I had a dream that I was speeding way out of control and not comfortable, I would interpret that as a health dream that I am going way too fast. Mm -hmm. And so it might even be that I'm like drinking too much caffeine or, you know, maybe I'm taking speed or doing something that's causing my body to go too fast. Or it might just be that I am physically running around way too fast. And especially because the dreamer is out of control, I would look at it. That's why I'm saying, I think it's, if, if I had that, I would look at it as a health dream where it's not like, okay, I'm moving really fast and I'm navigating really well, but I'm moving too fast out of control. So I would probably look at what's going on in my waking life, the times that I have that dream and see what I might need to do to slow down. You know, is it get more sleep? Is it I take some breaks and meditate? Is it I learn some deep breathing exercises? If it is something that I know that I'm, you know, drinking way too much caffeine to cut back on it, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Some kind of slowing down. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I'll, we'll see. We'll see if there's agreement or not. I can, I'll let you know. Okay. So when you're, when you're working with people with their dreams, uh, do you find that by helping people pay attention to these things, you help them connect to their deeper purpose and like solve problems in their life? Because I know that's something that you also do. Yes. And I have evolved from the way that I originally learned about interpreting dreams to asking the dreamer questions to draw out of him or her, how they understand the people and objects in the dream. So for example, if um, someone has a dream about a person, um, the first thing I do is ask them if they could describe that person in a word or two, what qualities do they see in them? You know, do they see them as being stubborn, disciplined, kind, whatever. And then I might do a kind of guided imagination exercise where they close their eyes and go back into the dream as that character and then ask them some questions so they can draw more out of themselves about why is that person even in the dream in terms of what is it telling them about themselves. And um, depending upon what the dream is, what the action of the dream is, one dream could reveal a lot about someone's purpose or in many cases from looking at a series of dreams that can help for the dreamer to begin to see connecting links in terms of what's going on in their experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see it being so useful. I know when I've done it, even just the process of trying to understand my dream has taught me a lot about myself. Like whether I actually understood the dream or not, I have no idea, but I learned a lot. So I guess that's the point right. either way. 
It is the point. And one thing that I really appreciate about writing down dreams is that I might have a dream tonight that I write down and tomorrow I get some mileage out of it by seeing what it's telling me. But maybe two weeks from now, when I look back over it with the perspective of what's happened in the two weeks, I can get another perspective on it. And in that way, um, I think it can be an ongoing kind of autobiography that helps us to learn about ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I get that a lot from my paintings. That, that reminds me of the way that I will go back and forth through time. Through a, so I guess like a different kind of a journaling practice because you can access different states of mind than just by by writing or being verbal. Absolutely. Years ago, there was a woman who came to the School of Metaphysics. This is when we had schools in Colorado and she's an artist and she became aware that if there was something she was trying to figure out in herself, she would sit down and draw and an answer would reveal itself through her drawing. And the reason she came to the school is that she wanted to learn about her dreams so that she could become better at doing that, at being able to interpret her own drawings. So I thought that was great. The example I remember is she had done a drawing, I think it was colored pencil, that was not exactly cartoony, but kind of sort of Mary Bright style. And there was a house that had a bunch of uh, polar bears. The polar bears were like people. They were doing all these different things. You could see them hanging out the windows. And this the main character polar bear in the drawing was going up a ladder and had an ice cream cone in his hand. And you could see that for him to move up the next rung of the ladder, he would have to let go of the ice cream cone. So that was kind of captured in motion. And she, she didn't really think about it ahead of time, but after she looked at it, how she interpreted that is that there was a change that she was contemplating making in herself, but in order to take the next step, in terms of where she wanted to go, she had to let go of something that was um, desirable to her in her life. So she wanted to get better at being able to look at her own drawings and interpret what That's they were so telling cool. her. I, I've, I've definitely had experiences like that from my drawings. Now, now I'm going to work on interpreting them too. <laughs> yeah, that's great. When you uh, think about all the things that you do, um, do you feel like there are any misconceptions that you want to clear up for the public or just really annoying things that people don't understand about dream work or intuition or anything really at this time? That's an interesting question. I think that one misconception that some people have is, at least from my perspective, it's a misconception, is that dreams are 
a brain experience. So I've heard people say that dreams are for memory consolidation. And I believe that sleep is for memory consolidation, which is why if somebody's working on a problem or looking for a solution and they've exhausted their conscious mind as much as they can, they say, okay, I just need to sleep on it. And when they go to sleep, they have all of the pieces in their brain from everything that they've read and studied. And then when they go to sleep and they let go of that conscious mind control, then it gets consolidated and they can wake up with a solution in mind. So that activity that occurs in the brain is a brain activity. The mind activity is what I would call intuition, that the intuition is a direct grasp of truth that we have access to in dreams and we have access to while awake. And I think that it is more than a brain activity, which is why I also think it's possible to have mind to mind communication with other people. It's why it's possible to have someone who has died who can actually come to us in the dream state. I mean, once someone has died, they don't have a physical body or a brain. So if that is just a brain experience, that wouldn't even be possible. And I have heard sometimes the same people who think it's all a brain experience who say, well, you know, it wasn't really that person visiting you. It's because you're thinking about them. It's because you miss them. And I know that that's not true. I, I, I mean, sometimes dreams can be like that, but I also know it is very possible to have a dream where someone who has died can be with you in the dream state or you can be with them in the dream state. Have you experienced that? I have. In fact, there's a book that I wrote called Intuitive Dreaming and the initial inspiration for it was, were two very powerful dreams that I had after my husband died one in which he came to me and the earlier one where I wanted him to come to me and he hadn't. So I pleaded with him and then had a dream where I think I was actually visiting him where he was. Oh, that's really interesting. What, what was that like? Or do you mind sharing? Sure. I'd be glad to share. Um, so the, let me give a little backstory. John was my husband's name. He and I met through the School of Metaphysics. So he also had experience with dreams and keeping dream journals. And the early part of our relationship before we were married and even the first year, maybe year and a half of our marriage, we were living in different places. So it was a long distance relationship. And this was before cell phones, if you can even believe that that was possible. Yeah, that must have been and, really um, rough. So sometimes we would try to meet each other in our dreams. We called them dream dates. And we weren't always successful, but the practice of it was a way for us to strengthen intuition. Like we would say, okay, tonight we're going to meet and we would pick a 
place that we both knew that we were going to meet. And um, so anyway, he died unexpectedly young. He was only 42. I was only 43. And I wasn't there when he died. And I really wanted to see him and say goodbye to him. So I thought he would come to me in a dream because, you know, dreaming was a part of our lives. And when he didn't, at first I thought it was because I wasn't sleeping very well. And I can't remember how long this was after he died. I'm thinking maybe six weeks. I decided to write him a letter. So I wrote him a long kind of pleading letter in my dream notebook, telling him how much I loved him, telling him how much I missed him and that I really wanted him to come to me in a dream. Then I meditated and then I went to sleep. And that night I had a dream that I was at a graduation ceremony and there was a stage that was pretty far away and I could see a semicircle of chairs on the stage and John was there. He was wearing this red baseball cap that he used to wear. So I knew it was him. I knew I could see him, but I wasn't sure if he could see me or not. And the graduation ceremony ended and the dream was ending and this man who I don't know walked up to me and he gave me my Bible that apparently I had left sitting on the edge of the stage. And when I picked the Bible up, this little piece of paper fluttered out and I saw on the paper, there was a heart that was drawn in John's handwriting. And I knew in the dream and as I was in the process of waking up, that that was his way of telling me that he loved me and that the reason that he didn't write it in words and why he hadn't come to me before that in a dream is that he was still graduating into this new experience of being on the other side and that he couldn't really communicate that way yet. So that dream was very profound and it was kind of bittersweet because the sweet part is that I knew that he could hear me and that he was connected with me. The bitter part is that I didn't get what I wanted, which was, you know, to meet him, to hug him, have this conversation. That was, you know, what I was imagining that we would have. However, it was so real there was no doubt in my mind when I woke up that that was a direct contact in the dream. And then after that, I had some experiences when I was awake that I definitely felt his presence. It was like I could feel him hugging me from behind. I could feel his presence with me in the car one time when a song came on that was very meaningful to him. and. I started crying, like I had to pull over because I couldn't even drive. And it, I realized it was not just crying out of grief. I was crying because I could just feel his presence there in the car with me. And the second visitation dream I had that this dream really changed my life in a lot of ways was the evening of September 11th, 2001. So. He died on September 10th of the year 2000. 
And I decided after a year of him being gone that I wanted to take a day off of work and spend it with him to do some meditating, to do some praying. And we lived in the country at the time. So I woke up and got in my car to drive to a church. The closest one was about 20 miles away. I turned on the radio and I hear the radio announcer yelling, oh my God, the second tower has been hit. So, I mean, as I'm driving into town, I'm hearing this unfolding story about what happened in New York and the Twin Towers going up in flames. And all day long, it was, I mean, for everybody, a really surreal kind of day. For me, a lot of my alarm was, I know people who live in Manhattan. I have a sister-in-law who lives there, who's, her son who was maybe 11 at the time was living with her. I have friends who live there and it was impossible to get a hold of anyone. All of the cell towers were down. So I, I had no idea if these people were dead or alive, if they were safe. And I became aware that really all I could do that day was just send out a big broadcast of light and love and pray as much as I could. So it kind of shifted my original intent for the day, which was to spend it with John and the memory of him. And so that night I had a dream that John was in New York and he was helping the people who had died in the World Trade Center. And I saw him um, kind of, I guess like above the World Trade Center. And I looked at him and I said, I'm, I'm saying said, but I wasn't saying the words. It was like a telepathic communication. Are they okay? And he lit up with this amazing light, like a celestial light. And he beamed this huge smile and he said, yes, they're fine. Once they're out, they're fine. Hmm. And when he said, once they're out, I felt this huge release of energy, like this whoosh of exhilaration. And I knew that was the feeling of what it's like when the spirit leaves the body. And I knew what he meant by that is once they're out of the body, meaning the people who have died, they're fine. The people who weren't fine were those of us here on earth, scared, angry, freaked out. And the reason that that dream changed my life was, first of all, John looked great. He looked handsome. He looked happy. If he had been alive at that time, we lived in Missouri, he probably would have gotten in a car and driven from Missouri to New York to help people at the World Trade Center. So I knew that he was in his element doing what hmm. he wanted to do. And that message that they're fine, once they're out, they're fine. I really believe that that is a true message about eternal life. So that has helped me tremendously with my work as a counselor, as a teacher, helping people who either have a terminal illness or they have loved ones who have some terminal illness or who are dying or have died. So um, yeah, that was a very powerful dream. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Thank you for asking.
I'm, I'm really, I'm interested in ways, I guess, in which that our society can become a little bit more comfortable with death. You know, I am too, Jasmine, and I don't really know what that's going to take. I do know that the, um, I don't know if it's an increase in hospice. The fact that we have hospice, I think is great because that's designed to help people accept the fact that they're dying and not try to keep the body going at all costs. But I think people still have a very hard time talking about it. And I know sometimes when someone has cancer or some other kind of terminal illness, if they say, I don't wanna go through chemotherapy, people around them sometimes really react to that and they say, oh, you should fight this. Yeah. When maybe they don't want to. So I, I agree. I think that it's something that's very important for us to uh, become more at ease discussing and one thing that I became very aware of when my husband was alive, he didn't have a terminal illness. He had type one diabetes and complications of that is that the more that humanity develops scientifically, the more important it is, I believe, to also develop spiritually. Because one of the things I experienced with John is that when his kidneys started to fail, he didn't want to go on dialysis, but the doctors didn't even acknowledge that that was a possibility. It was, you know, you're young, you're 40 years old, of course you're going to go on dialysis. And he didn't want a kidney transplant, and it was the same thing. Of course you're going to have a kidney transplant. It's available, you're young. And, I mean, I don't not at all know. I would not presume to pretend that I do know, but I wonder sometimes if the reason that he died before he got the kidney transplant while he was waiting for a kidney is that on some level, maybe his soul was ready to go. And so, you know, sometimes people say it wasn't meant to be. I don't even know what that means because we, meaning human beings, have the ability to do a lot of things that are not natural. You know, if we were just to let nature run its course, people would have much different lives than they do. So, you know, is it good? Is it bad? I, I think that those are all choices that we have the opportunity to make and we need to make. And I think how that's related to death and dying is that I think as a, culture, our society is still pretty allergic to the idea that sometimes death might be the uh, what the soul wants or needs. Yeah. And I wonder if it comes from being so generally disconnected from the metaphysical aspects of being and the world of the mind. I think so. I mean, I think that the more 
strongly somebody believes that life is completely a physical endeavor and doesn't have a concept of existence beyond the physical body, the more fear and resistance there is to accepting that there's a natural order of things. And if we look at other forms of nature that don't have free will, you know, trees go through a cycle where they don't have green leaves all year round. There's a time when the leaves turn brown and then they fall off. And there are um, just cycles that occur in nature. And I think that's true with us also. Yeah, I'm thinking even like in in a forest, like somehow, you know, when there's a forest fire, some, sometimes that makes all the plants rejuvenate and regrow. Yes, absolutely. And all kinds of what we call natural disasters. My sister used to live in Miami and I remember going to some nature preserve where they had signs that were talking about the plant life that was there and how it had rejuvenated after one of the big hurricanes they had there and that the hurricane was actually actually necessary for those particular plants to rejuvenate. The problem is when you have people who have built houses in those places so that it's not just the plants that are rejuvenating, it destroys people's homes. So, you know, again, that's part of where I think that it could help us to accept those cycles to also be more aware of what we do with the land and where we build and is this going to be the most beneficial for all concerned. Yeah, I think too, it, it seems like it's about maybe not labeling everything as good or bad, but being able to navigate both sides of the coin and see the gray zone. Yes, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. Hmm. Do you now ever experience any mind-to-mind connection with people who are alive? Yes, all the time. Oh. What, what is that like? One example is um, I'm not thinking about somebody and all of a sudden they pop in my mind and then I get a text from them or see that they've sent an email. And because of the practice that I've done with concentration and stilling my mind and dreams, I'm much more aware now of who's initiating the communication. It used to be when I was younger, I didn't know, is it because I was thinking about them and they received my thought and that's why they contacted me or did they contact me and I heard the call? And you probably experienced that, but maybe don't even recognize it as telepathy or intuition. Yeah, it's interesting. I was already thinking, yeah, I, I definitely have had experiences like that. I, I think I experience it and label it as a synchronicity. 
Well, it is a synchronicity, which is one way of describing intuition, which means that things are um, resonating with each other or people's minds are resonating with each other. Interesting. Oh, I never, I, I definitely never would have labeled it in the past as something telepathic, but that's pretty cool. It is cool. And one thing that you can do if you're interested in exploring it is just like keeping a dream journal, you can keep a waking journal of intuitive happenings. And I mean, that was for me in my early studies of metaphysics, a practice that I did. And that is one thing that helped me to become much more aware of how often that happened mm. and how it can happen in everyday things. So, I mean, one early experience, I remember I was walking with a friend down a street and we passed a toy store that had so much stuff in the window. And I said, look at that, but I didn't point with my finger. And so we started talking about whatever this toy was. And then all of a sudden I realized the only way that she had of knowing what the, that was that I was referring to is that she received my mental image because even looking in the direction where my eyes were looking, there were probably six or seven things that were in my line of vision. I didn't point with my finger, but we were both talking about the same thing. And I never would have labeled that as a um, happening of intuition if I wasn't keeping the journal. No, that's sometimes, a good idea. Yeah, sometimes it happens with things like you have a certain way that you're used to driving to work or your mom's house and one day you just get a hunch that seems to come out of nowhere to go a different way. And so you go a different way and then you find out there was a big traffic wreck the way that you usually go. Or sometimes it happens, those experiences happen and you say, that's ridiculous. Why would I go a different way? And so you discount it and then you get stuck in the traffic jam. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really important to, to recognize when you're listening to your intuition and when you're, when you're neglecting it. Yes, I agree. I know I do keep a lot of um, images related to those kinds of experiences. Keep images, say more about what you mean. Um, I collect, collect images. Have a, they're, they're mostly on my Instagram actually, my personal Instagram. Okay. Which not many people follow. So <laughs> I guess I'll have to add that one in here. It's, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it started. It was just like synchronicities, intuitions, weird moments or things that are unusual that I wanted to remember. Mm -hmm. It's sometimes though, I just take a picture of like some, something nearby where it happened mm -hmm. or something that's pretty around the area, but it, it reminds me of it. Yeah, that's great. I think I'm following you, but if not, I'll make sure that I do. <laughs> yeah, actually, I don't know. I'm, we'll probably have to get connected on Instagram. Right. 
Well, thank you so much for, for being so honest and, and sharing these stories. I know these are like very personal stories. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for asking. I think that it can be very valuable for people to hear other people's personal stories. And I think it can be valuable to tell the stories. I know for me, the more genuine I can be, the better able I am to help people. And I don't remember how long ago it was, but there was a point that I decided that what I really wanted in my relationships was to be inside out, meaning that how I was on the inside, that's how I could be on the outside because I'm a pretty introverted person and there's a lot that goes on inside of me. And I was raised to not be, well, I wasn't raised to lie for sure, but I wasn't raised to be open. Um, and so there were a lot of things that I kept to myself or kept private. And it just, I think the best kinds of friendships and relationships of all kinds happen when people are open with each other. So I hope that by me sharing myself with other people that it encourages other people to share them, themselves as well. Yeah, and I think that makes sense, especially when you're working with people in around those kinds of topics that I'm sure people will feel more comfortable knowing more about your experience too. I think so too. And part of the work that I do with people is to help them discover or sometimes recover if they felt like they had to shut it down who they really are so that they can express themselves in whatever their unique genius way is. I think everybody has a certain brilliance to them. And I think people are happiest when they're causing or allowing their brilliance to shine. So that's how I work with people to help them to do that. If you could do anything that you wanted in the world to, to make that happen, um, do you have any dream plans? Not like dreams at night, but. I'm actually doing some of those things with the work that I do with people to help them understand their dreams to, there's a workshop that I teach that I really enjoy that guides people through identifying their core values and their ideals so that they can have a, a mission statement that is really resonating with and centered on who they are. So that can be like a compass that guides them through the world. In terms of doing it more, I would love to go into organizations, companies, groups to help people establish that in the workplace. I think that what makes any organization run the best is when 
each person who works there resonates with their natural strengths and abilities. And when their individual ideal and purpose aligns with the company ideal and purpose, and sometimes there are people who work at a place where they're not really a good fit for the company, or they might be a good fit for the company, but not in the position they're in, they would be better in a different position. So I would love to be able to do that more because I really believe that the more in tune each person is with their own inner self, the more fulfilled they are, the happier they are, then they become kinder to other people. And I think ultimately that what is what makes the whole world function better. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that the state of our work environment in America is almost like a crisis. The amount of people that are totally unfulfilled with the work that they're doing. Yes, I agree. And I think that there are ways that that can definitely improve. I think there are companies that are trying to improve that with their employees. I think one of the blessings of this pandemic and people working from home, of course, not everybody has worked from home, but for some people, I think, think it has helped them to get more in tune with their natural rhythms. Like they don't necessarily have to jump out of bed, waking up to an alarm. They can sleep longer or kind of adjust their schedule so that it's more harmonious with their own, how their body functions. You know, that hasn't been true for everybody, but I think the more we can do that, the better um, people will be better at work and better at home and better in all ways. I like it. Maybe maybe someday Archives for Aliens can sponsor you. <laughs> Long ways away. <laughs> we'll sponsor people to go in and help corporate America. That's one right. of my one of my passions in life. Either we've got to make some big changes or we got to replace it. Yeah. Are there any certain groups that you're specifically extra passionate about working with or a certain kind of scenario that somebody finds himself in? Well, there are actually two groups that I am working with. And I do think that St. Louis is a great community for trying to make some of these changes. So since last June, I've been working with a program called Project Unplugged that works with Missouri Baptist Hospital. And I've been teaching small groups of doctors and now nurses also about preventing burnout and having greater wellness. So that has been very fulfilling. And I'm really grateful that Missouri Baptist is doing what it can to improve the culture for the doctors who are working there. Um, I recently connected with someone at the St. Louis County Police Department who was on the news about a program for 
wellness for police officers. So I hopefully I'm going to be able to do some programs with them. I, I don't know if there's any particular group that I'm passionate about. I think anybody who is in a profession where they are helping other people, you know, in this case, doctors, police officers, police dispatchers, teachers, counselors, parents, anyone who's in a position to help other people, I would like to help them because that way the influence extends. So if you think about a parent teaching something to their children and then their children pass it on to their children and they pass it on to their children, it goes on for generations. The same thing with teachers, with any, anyone who has an influence with someone else, it doesn't stop with the first person who they influence, then that person influences someone else. And I think over time, that's what makes our society change. Yeah. So like helping, helping the helpers so that the helpers can better help the people they're helping. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's great. That's like getting to the, getting to the root of the branch not quite sure that makes any sense the top of the pyramid (laughs) right do you want to share some information on your upcoming dream workshop yes i am going to be teaching a four-week online class about dreams it starts on march 11th and it will teach people why we dream, why it's important for us to pay attention to our dreams, how to remember dreams, how to record them, and several different methods about how to interpret dreams. Also about how to incubate dreams, which means specifically asking a dream for something it could be guidance it could be inspiration and i love helping people with their dreams it's live online meaning that each session will be recorded so people can listen back to it or if they miss a class they can listen to it but it's not pre-recorded so the students who are in the class will have a chance to interact to ask questions if there are students who want work done with a particular dream, we can do that. Um, I also am going to be teaching four individual class workshops. One is on your personal mission that I was just talking about, how to clarify your ideals and core values, write a mission statement, which is really powerful work. One class is on intuition, so we've touched a little bit on that about how to develop waking intuition and how to really tell when what you're hearing is your intuitive self and when it's brain chatter because they're not the same. One of them is on, uh, this is on St. Patrick's Day, it's on how to be lucky, so it's about the universal laws, the law of attraction, some of the other universal laws, how to understand 
how to be in the right place at the right time and align with the laws of the universe that when we are in harmony with them, they actually bring to us what we envision. And then the last class is on turning ideas into action. So what I have found is that most people who are creative have lots of ideas. They sometimes are kind of ADD and don't really know where to start. Sometimes they just get overwhelmed because they have so many ideas and um, may have a hard time following through on those. So this is about how to focus, how to prioritize, how to take steps so that all of these brilliant ideas can actually manifest in the world. And people can find all of these on my website, which is laurelclark.com. So it's my name.com. We'll have a link too in the description. Okay. And any other links to your social media that you want to add in there, you can send me an email after this. Okay, I will. Uh, that last class, that, that one sounds really, really good. I know a lot of people that would benefit greatly. I know from working with a lot of creative people, that's one of the common themes I, I deal with. Yes, I have found that too. So that, that one's interesting to me, especially. So I do, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, um, I'll start here. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Hmm. I could change one thing about the world. It would be for people to operate from a place of trust, trusting that it's a benevolent universe, trusting that somewhere in their heart, people really do want the best for other people. And I think if everybody had that as an agreement, so that instead of approaching other people with suspicion, they could be trusting, that would make a huge difference. I love that. I'm, I'm so into not living out of fear. Uh, all right, next one. Uh, in your opinion, how can people best take charge of their own life and empower themselves? I think it starts with being aware of the relationship between self-care and caring for other people. And I've heard people say you have to love yourself before you can love other people. I don't believe that's true. I believe we actually learn about love through loving other people. I do believe though that people need to learn how to nourish themselves by whatever they need. For some people it's getting enough sleep. For some people it's having some time every day to do something creative. For some people it's um, having a support system of other people they can call upon. And I think when each person knows what they need to be nourished and supported, 
then they're in a much better position to be supportive and helpful to other people in a healthy way. Yeah, I like that. I think that realization is important because people do have such vastly different ways of understanding what what self-care is for them. Mm -hmm. What's the most unusual ritual or practice that you've engaged in? When you say ritual or practice, do you mean a regular thing or a one-time? It could be one-time. So one, this has been a long time ago, one experience I had when I was in college, I was on a program called the New England Literature Program. We went to New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine to um, study literature and basically to live out in nature, to reproduce the experience of the transcendentalists and I was with a small group of people who climbed a mountain in the dark with flashlights. It was called Mount Chikarawa in New Hampshire. And we got to the top of the mountain just before sunrise. So we watched the sunrise from the top of this mountain. And it was a really deeply spiritual kind of experience because it was first of all, challenging to climb this mountain in the dark without being able to see where we were going. And the metaphor of taking one step at a time to go through something that's hidden and unknown. And then once you get to the top, you can see everything all around you. It's that image and the feeling and the experience of it has stayed with me all these years i was probably 17 years old when i did that oh yeah that's intense that's that's a journey yes what's one piece of advice that you would give to yourself 20 years ago i would say to recognize and appreciate all of the energy that I have invested in self-development and self-growth and to expect that that investment not only is paying off but will continue to pay off whether in small or large ways. That might also relate to this next one. Okay. How do you define success? Mm. I love that question. And my answer to it kind of changes over the years. I define success as being aware of what's most meaningful and valuable and investing time and energy in doing that. So for me, for example, having good relationships is very important to me. And when I look at my life, you know, over the years of my life, the times that I've been most fulfilled have been when I've had good relationships. And I mean, relationships of all kinds. And I've had people ask me, 
questions like, what's your favorite place that you've lived? Because I've lived in a lot of different cities. And my favorite places always have to do with the kinds of friends, colleagues, and relationships I had in those places. Not that one was in the mountains and one was the city or it wasn't the physical location, it was the people. So the, in summary, I would say it's from knowing what's meaningful to you and then doing things that fulfill that. That's a good summary. I like that too, because it can change over time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, there's one last thing that I'm going to ask you to do tonight, and this okay. is a fun one. Um, so you're in charge of giving the listeners uh, a weekly challenge. And it can be absolutely anything that you'd like to have them do. Or think about, or be, or create. That is appealing to me. So the challenge that I would give to your listeners is every day to reach out and do something heart-centered and heartfelt and maybe in a way that's a little bit beyond your comfort zone. Like telling somebody, I love you, that you've never said that to before or um, picking up the phone and calling someone who you've been thinking about and for whatever reason have been putting it off or whatever, that would be individual. But to do something heart-centered and to reach out and if it feels a little bit scary, do it anyway. That's going to be really exciting. I hope to hear from people who participate in this challenge and you guys can leave a comment on the main site. Um, you can also email me or contact me anywhere you can find me on the internet. And I'm hoping that I'll be able to share share some of these experiences um, at some point in the future. I'm going to have um, a, a whole podcast just on some of the shared experiences that are going to be coming in over the next month. That's fantastic. I love it. It sounds really fun. Yes. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for being here. And this has been... This has been so much, um, so much to process, really, and fun in a lot of ways, and it just feels so relevant to everything that's going on in the world, um, and I, I hope that everyone tonight learned a little bit more about why dreams are important, and I guess things related to intuition and I, things beyond the physical self. Maybe that'll be our summary. Any, any okay. last words? I just want to thank you, Jasmine. You are a great interviewer. You listen really well. You ask very intriguing questions. So I've learned a lot about myself, just being thoughtful about the questions you've asked. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you. Oh, thank you. And very cool. That That's my goal here. Like I want, I want us both to learn and I want the audience to learn and I, I just want this to be a space for people to explore so that means the world to me fantastic all right i'll talk to you guys again next week for more archives for aliens mm -hmm.